0: Thank you for the rich worship coming into your presence. We thank you, Lord, that you are strengthening your genuine people in these last days. And while it gets darker out there, it gets brighter in the true church. And we pray that you will establish us further in your word tonight so that we are confident and secure in that this is your word, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now, I want you to quote a psalm to your neighbor. It says, he he has set my feet on a rock and given me a new song. Well, he set my feet on a rock. That means he stabilized my life. That's, That's what Wednesday nights are a lot about, stabilizing our faith. So turn to your neighbor and say, he set my feet upon a rock. amen amen he set my feet upon a rock and established my goings he he stabilized me stabilized me well it's good to see you on a wednesday night and we're connecting the dots we're learning kind of how the bible got put together and we're looking at an overview of the old testament we're taking our time this is a little bit like a like a sort of like a bible class a seminary class. Um, I don't want I don't want to preside over a biblically illiterate church. And the problem is a lot of Christians are biblically illiterate. We have our favorite little verses, and then after those favorite little verses, we don't have a clue what the whole Bible's about. So I'm taking my time and I know you're in no hurry either. God's not in a hurry. and we're getting an overview of the Old Testament because by the time we're done, you're going to understand the theme of the Old Testament, how it connects to the New Testament, and the whole Bible is going to make way more sense to you. Okay? I don't know about you, but for years as a believer, the Old Testament was, I love the Psalms and I love the Proverbs, but understanding all of it together in one unity, I wish I had had a grasp on that sooner. But we're going to get that. And so great to have you tonight. And uh, let's, let's connect the, the dots. We're going to talk about how the Bible was put together. I'm getting a bad feeling because already this isn't working. Oh, I have a bad feeling. What's wrong here? Y'all just turn to your neighbor in fellowship, and I, there it went. Did I do that or did you do that? Okay, Tyler, why is it not working? Do you know? Well, is it on? Can you come see? I don't know if it's on. Batteries are in it. Was it tested before the service? Okay. Okay. Pray a little bit. Pray a little bit. You know, the devil does not want me teaching this. It's just amazing. And I really mean that. It was tested before the service, and it worked. I stand up here. It doesn't work. Well, (laughs) huh The devil is a liar, and I think we'll get it. Anyway, did y'all have a good week? Has God been with you so far this week? All right. Are you going to just take me through it until he comes back? Okay. Let's look at how we got the Old Testament. All right. The Old Testament was collected into a canon by God's people, and that's one end, not two. It's what we call the canon of Scripture. And uh, canon literally means a measurement or a standard or a measuring stick, really a straight line. All right? That's what canon means. Now, one of the graces that God has extended to mankind is to have his revealed word recorded and passed down through the generations. Thank God for that. From the very beginning, God was clear that his word should be written down. Let me show you how we know that. In Exodus 17, verse 14, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this. Now, what did he say to Moses? Write this. Okay? Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Here comes my messenger. Thank you, Frank, Alfredo. Everybody say, Yay! Yay! What was it? Out of curiosity. We don't even know. Somebody bound the devil. All right. So I'm so thrilled that I've got it back now. Now look at this. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it, pass it down in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So there is God commanding Moses to write the words he gave him in a book, okay? So God's uh, books were God's idea. Indeed, God himself started the process of writing his word when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And I think every believer ought to know the Ten Commandments. Our nation is going into a sewer because we have forgotten the Ten Commandments. Okay? Look what he said, Exodus 32, 16. The tablets were the work of God. Wow. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now that's telling us that God, Moses didn't sit there and chisel it out. The power of God fell and burned into those rocks the commandments. So, Pastor Jeff, you don't really believe that. That sounds like Cecil B. DeMille and the Ten Commandments. Well, the way that he portrayed it is kind of the way the Bible says it. And, of course, I believe it. God spoke and brought something out of nothing. He can surely burn words into a stone. And that's what he did. He was also clear that his words should be preserved. Following his recording of, the revel- of God's revelation, Moses made sure that it would be protected. It says, quote, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law, in a book, to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, look what he said to them, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. That's Deuteronomy 31. In other words, do not let the words that God gave me ever fade into oblivion. Always keep them before the people, for the word is what keeps you from straying. That's why I tell us, like a broken record, we've got to get into the word daily, often. Because every time you read that word, let me tell you what it does. It pulls you back into center. It pulls you back into walking the way you should. As soon as you put that Bible down, your flesh will begin to drift. You will drift. And that's what's happened to our country. Look at our country now. Just look at it. It's a cesspool of perversion. It is a cauldron of confusion. We don't know what is up or down or right or bad. or it, It's such a mess. And, and when did that begin? It began when we took the Bible out of our culture. And that's what we've done. Moses said, you better take it with you. You better always have it there. In the wisdom literature of the Bible and the prophets, God was very clear about why his word must be written. He said in Psalms 102 verse 18, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's talking about you. That's why the Bible was passed down, for a people yet to be created that we would also praise the Lord like David did. Okay? So God said, let it be written now. And then Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8 says, and now go, he said to the prophet Isaiah, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a what, everybody? In a book. That it may be for the time to come as a witness for how long? the Word of the Lord endureth forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Okay? God commanded that His Word must be written in order to be preserved for future generations. Now, there were five periods in the history of Israel in which the canonization of sacred Old Testament Scriptures took place. And the final collection was established in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, first, Moses canonized the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Let's say them together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Torah. That's the Pentateuch. That's the first five books. Shortly before he died, Moses authorized the first five books of our Bible to be the divine law of Israel, authorized by Moses, He then delivered them into the custody of the priesthood for safekeeping. Moses ordained the Levitical priesthood to be the official guardians of the law, the Torah, the first five books. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 31 verse 9. And Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, which bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, And to all the elders of Israel. He turned this sacred writing over to them. It was not the words of Moses, it was the word of God through Moses. And any civilization that's built on the Torah will be a blessed civilization, a sound civilization, a sane civilization, a moral civilization. The scrolls of the law were stored. Here's the way they did it. They took those scrolls, those, you know, we've seen those papyri scrolls, papyrus, rolled, rolled all up. They took those scrolls and they were stored in specially designated sleeve compartments attached to the sides of the ark. The ark of God's covenant. By this provision, the high priest should consult the standard copies left by Moses. So their Bible was in those scrolls. It was the first five books. That was their Bible for a while, for quite some time. Just those five books. And they consider themselves blessed to have just those five books. And we've got 66. Okay? In later times, when Israel had kings, each king was supposed to write out with his own hand personal copies of the original Ark Scrolls as a surety that he understood all the separate laws written therein. In other words, anybody who was going to be king had to fully understand the law. What would that do if we made every congressman? Come on, everybody. If we made every senator, every representative, take those five books, just those five books, and know them inside out, then be sworn in. That's what they did with the kings. Saul did it. David did it. Solomon did it. Wow. Look what it says, Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. It shall be when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom that he, the king, shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. It's like he had to stand up to a chalkboard and write, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, Thou shalt not bear false witness. He had to write it out. He was totally familiar with the law. They didn't pass laws and say, let's see what's in it. I'm going to stop right there. (laughs) How insane is that? The next period for canonization... After the time of Moses was that of David. The final three canonizations of the Old Testament took place in the times of Hezekiah, Josiah, and Ezra. Now, the books written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua, the book of Joshua, were immediately accepted as being from God. Okay? The remainder of the books were tested to see if they met the qualifications of Scripture. Now, what were the qualifications? For the book to be received as part of the divine canon. Here they were. Was the book authored by a recognized prophet of God or a leader in Israel? Moses, Joshua, so on and so forth. Was the book authored by a recognized prophet? Isaiah, Jeremiah? Second, was there internal evidence of inspiration? In other words, was the authenticity of the book confirmed by God they look for internal evidence this is why the Apocrypha was never accepted in the Protestant canon because the Apocrypha so often deviated from the rest of Scripture and I, that, I'll spend another night sometime on the Apocrypha and all the different books in it and, and um, we'll go there sometime but right suffice it to say that um Certain books were rejected, some accepted because of this. Was there an internal evidence of inspiration? And one of the ways they knew was the third way, did the book contain anything with obvious doctrinal or factual errors which would eliminate it from being part of the canon? In other words, did the book they were looking at agree with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Was it in agreement with the moral law? and so on and so forth, did it harmonize with what they already knew was the Word of God? Or did it contradict? Because they knew if it contradicted, that was not the Word of God because God doesn't contradict Himself. He's not the author of confusion, but of peace. Okay? So they, they put every possible book that was going to go into the Old Testament canon through a sifter. The entire Old Testament was accepted by the Jewish people in its current state by no later than 167 B.C. So 167 years before Christ, the the Old Testament canon was accepted and complete. Okay? Now, secondly, the Old Testament was transmitted through scribes, or we also call them copyists, C-O-P-Y-I-S-T-S, copyists, scribes. A lot of times, the monks that we so often read about were involved in, the scholastic monks were involved in the in the copying down, the, the tenuous um, letter-by-letter copying of one manuscript onto another, every jot, every tittle, every word. Uh, this is where history really gets fascinating, and I, and I want you to think about the Bible, just for a minute, specifically the Old Testament, because that's where we are. Now, consider that There have been countless people over the last few thousand years who have given their lives to making sure God's Word is faithfully passed from generation to generation. The Bible in your hand is covered in the the blood of martyrs. Tyndale, burned at the stake. John Wycliffe's bones dug up by the Catholic Church later and burned to ashes. Polycarp, early church father, burned at the stake. Over and over and over, the transmitters and translators of the Word of God you hold in your hand were martyred, persecuted. Lives were made miserable because they took it upon themselves to translate and copy the Word so that we could read it for ourselves today. That Bible of yours is a miracle. It's a miracle that it's even here. For, for centuries, various groups tried to totally destroy it. Never happened. Because the word of the Lord endureth forever. And, and the Holy Ghost has seen to it that it has been sent down and carried down to us. Now, these scribes had no word processing software. There was no Steve Jobs There was no Bill Gates, there was no nothing, computers, typewriters, nothing. They literally took a a, a quill, a a pen, like a quill, they had to dip into ink and then write and then dip again. There was no, you know, long-lasting inkwell. They just had to do this and do that and do this and do that. Letter by letter, by laborious letter, they copied the whole Old Testament. Stooped down over a desk squinting, candlelight. They literally wrote out by hand the words of the Old Testament. We are very indebted to their meticulous labors. Amen? This is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about the Word, and I am passionate about the Word. There's a long line of people who were faithful to pass the Word on from generation to generation, and God help us to not let their labor be in vain. We're going to pass it on every way we can. All right? Now, our commitment at Turning Point is to highlight the Word. And we're going to follow the tradition of those who sacrifice their lives to make sure that the Word is passed on to the next generations. Don't kid yourself. It could be that one day some of us, myself, other pastors in America, are arrested for taking a stand on that Word. The Word has always been fought by the devil. All the way back to the Garden of Eden, hath God said... So first, the Old Testament was collected into a canon. Then it was transmitted through scribes. And thirdly, it was translated through different people along the way, Wycliffe, Tyndale, and others. One of the first and best-known translations is the the Septuagint. Everybody say the Septuagint. Now you're sounding really educated. Okay? The Septuagint, from the Latin word septuaginta, meaning seventy is a translation of the Hebrew Bible because that Hebrew Bible, that Bible that Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a smattering of Aramaic but primarily Hebrew and that Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Koine Greek which was the same language your New Testament was written in okay the Septuagint the Septuagint dates back to about 2 to 300 BC The title and its Roman numeral acronym, LXXL50XX101070, refer to the legendary 70 Jewish scholars that completed the translation as early as the 2nd century. Ooh, there's a BCE up there. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. It's BC. I'm sorry, I'm picky with that. We don't say before the common era. That's their way to get rid of Jesus. We say before Christ. All right. Many of the New Testament authors... Who quoted from the Old Testament were using this incredibly valuable translation. Paul, Peter, they used the Septuagint. Okay? Now that's a brief glance at the literary dimension of the Old Testament. Now let's look at the Old Testament as history. History. Now, first, when and where did the events in the Old Testament take place? Now I want you to keep something in mind. Real important here. I wish I had. I wish I was on ABC, CBS, NBC, and I could just say to the whole country, the Old Testament is real history. I want the millennials to particularly know that. The Old Testament is not a book of myths and fables and metaphors to bring across a religious point. That is not what it is. It is not a book of make-believe. And I'm it's doing it again. Go ahead. I want to emphasize that because, well, there it went. Okay. All right. I want to emphasize that because we have a tendency to almost view this book as a mythological picture, fable, or story from the past that may or may not be true. And that's not true. Even in the church, especially in the United States, you would be amazed. How many churches in the United States have done away with the Word of God, have gone secular, have have really walked away from it in stunning ways. In many churches, it's doubted in many different circles, but this book, the entire Bible, is real history, a real story of real people. There really was a great flood. Did you know that Jesus said that? There really was an ark. I heard a preacher talking about that on the way to church tonight. Me. (laughs) I really was. I couldn't believe it. I'm on this two nights, one by radio. Here we are again. Uh, There really was an original man and woman and no, neither one of them had navels. I want, y'all can't even catch up with me. They didn't have, they weren't, they weren't born like you and me. They were created. I just wanted to get your attention. Some of you were just like, all right. There really was a vast creation of God and so forth. The Old Testament is not just a book of wise religious counsel and theological propositions. That's not what it is. I want you to grasp this so that when we begin to unlock some of the things that are in the Old Testament, you will remember that we are not just telling stories to each other. These are genuine historical accounts. This is true, and it's about real places, real people, and real time. Now, let's take a look at how the events of the Old Testament unfolded. I want you to pretend with me that we're about 16,000 feet in the air, and we're looking down at ancient earth way back at Genesis 1.1. As we watch, this is what happened. In the beginning, there was nothing. Then there was something. Something. And that's simple. It's that simple. There was nothing, and then there was something. Even though that simple truth is part of a lot of debate in our culture today, and I've been debating evolutionists for weeks, who have called me every name in the book. It's really sharpening me. I've, I've appreciated them spending their time with me. I've lost most of them. Now, and they're all, you know, the earth is 2 billion, 5 billion, 10 billion years, 10 trillion years old, all this stuff. Well, guess what? Nothing cannot produce something apart from someone. Okay? It can't. And if I were just, if I weren't coming from the Scripture at all, but was looking at the, 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 um, belief system of evolutionists, it doesn't stand the test of logic and scrutiny. You have to want to believe it. I really believe that. God created the universe ex nihilo, which means is Latin for something out of nothing. He's the only one that can do that. There's no way. Any evolutionist, you talk to them, and here's what they're going to claim, that all of life, this is what they told me for weeks now, all of life began with a primitive one-celled creature. They came crawling out of some primordial sea. Okay. Over billions of years, everything else supposedly evolved from that one-celled creature. While that defies logic, and it does, the single-celled organism still had to come from somewhere. And I say to them, okay, well, where did that little guy come from? (laughs) Well, evolution doesn't answer that, they say. And I say, I know that it does not. So what does answer it? Well, we, we can't go there. That is still under the scrutiny of science. Science will never find it. This is one of the places evolution falls apart. Out of nothing, only nothing can come. Nothing doesn't produce something. So after creating all that we see, God made man and woman and placed them in the Garden of Eden. That's the beginning. Now, tragically and all too quickly, the Paradise of Eden became the location of the fall of man. By the way, Eden was somewhere around Iraq, Afghanistan, somewhere out in that direction, that side of the world. By Genesis 3, humankind is degenerating and continues doing so for many generations. As a result, God judged the world with a flood. Think about that. A flood covered the entire planet. It absolutely did. And the Grand Canyon proves it. But He spared one righteous man, Noah, and his family. Yet, sadly, following Noah and his family and floating all that time on the face of the, earth, uh, of the, of the deep while the waters receded, um, future generations after their children replenished the earth, Ham, Shem, and Japheth replenished the earth. And as the earth was replenished, man went right back to the same place they had been that made God judge them with the flood. Because man without God will always slide into depravity. Always. And will always worship idols. Always. So future generations didn't do much better. Humankind rebelled again at the Tower of Babel, resulting in their division and dispersion throughout the world. So in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have four epical events. Say it with me. The creation, the fall, the flood, and the tower. The creation God made everything fall, all man fell into the curse of sin. In the uh, tower, all men were dispersed across the earth. In the flood, all men were destroyed. Four huge epical events between Genesis 1 and Genesis 11. But then when you come to Genesis 12, God starts working out His promise that He gave in Genesis 3.15, which is the John 3.16 of the Bible. In Genesis 3.15, we are told, Satan is told by God you are going to be at war with the seed of the woman and he's going to be at war with you. You will, you will pierce his heel, but he will crush your head. That's the promise that God would send forth a Messiah who would destroy Satan. So Genesis 3.15 begins to be worked out in Genesis 12.1 with the call of Abram. With the call of Abram, God starts working out his plan of salvation. And there you have it in the next slide. Now, God called Abraham out of the pagan city, Ur of the Chaldees, where they worshiped the sun and everything else under the moon, under the sun, and uh, to follow him, follow God to the promised land. Abraham is the first patriarch, followed by Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, due to the great famine, as you know, that occurred while Joseph served Pharaoh in Egypt, the descendants of Abraham all gathered there and flourished under Joseph's protection. Yet the Israelites ultimately fell into slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and God had already told Abraham that that would happen to his descendants when he had that dream. So the end of Genesis finds God's chosen people in slavery. Genesis ends with God's Israel in slavery. Yet still they have the Abrahamic covenant that promised they'd become a great nation and be a blessing to the world. Then next comes the Exodus. At the end of Genesis, the people are in slavery, and that means the Exodus has to happen to fulfill God's promise to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the promised land. He had to get them out of Egypt, so he raised raised up Moses. Moses is raised up to lead Israel out of Egypt. They are led out of slavery, and once they're out, God gives Israel the law, the Torah, The Pentateuch, the five books, and the Ten Commandments. After a long and arduous 40-year journey through the wilderness that they could have actually made in two weeks. Geographically, they they could have crossed the land in two weeks. Doesn't that just make you want to cry? They took 40 years to get where they could have gotten in two weeks if they had just obeyed God. And none of the first generation got there. But... Joshua and Caleb. They all died. (laughs) Joshua led the second generation of God's people into the promised land. Yet they, as well, once they got there, did not keep God's Word. And as soon as Joshua died, and they didn't have to look him in the eye anymore, they constantly fell prey to the idols that were worshipped by the very pagans God had called them to defeat the old testament's full of irony it's filled with irony god raised them up to defeat these nations but they fell to the nations because they were not defeated physically but they were corrupted spiritually by their idols idolatry and they started even making their own children pass through the fire to moloch and all these various gods it's incredible Because of their chronic backslidings, Israel was continuously made subject to hostile nations that oppressed them grievously. And you can read about that in the book of Judges. As they cried out for deliverance, God raised up various judges like Gideon, Samson, Deborah. And actually there were, I think, 12 judges in all that would deliver them. The times of the judges lasted about 300 years. 300 years of chronic backsliding. The key verse to the book of Judges is this one, and read it well, because it's our motto in America now. Read it with me. In those days, there was no king in Israel. What happened? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Can't camp here long, but what is that? It's relativism. It is relativism. Your truth isn't my truth. My truth isn't your truth. Whatever is your truth, hey, bless you. I got my truth, you got yours. I won't tell you yours is wrong. You don't tell me mine is wrong. And we'll all be happy. Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just coexist? It doesn't really matter how we get to heaven as long as we're sincere. Relativism. And relativism and political correctness are brother and sister. Political correctness feeds off of relativism like a tick on a dog. So the whole nation now of America has left the Judeo-Christian ethic, which said this. We receive truth by revelation from God, not by what our heart tells us is true. Because there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. A fallen heart and a fallen mind and a fallen conscience cannot discover truth. it's true. So we must have revelatory truth. And as soon as America, and it goes way back, decided to get the word of God out, they threw out revelation truth, vertical truth, and they turned to horizontal truth, whatever I decide is true. So you got Rene Descartes comes along and says, I think, therefore I am. Profound, Rene. What is he saying? I am learning to arrive at truth by what looks true to me. And I could go into all these crazy philosophers. Sometime I'm going to do it. But suffice it to say that America now has gone this way. And that's why we're in the chaos we're in. Seriously, church. Truth comes from above. And if we don't receive revelation truth, then we are going to drown in the blind... We are going to be wiped out in the blinding snowstorm of relativism where everybody, nobody can find anything. Eventually the people demanded a king that they might be like other nations. We want to be like everybody else. Their first king was Saul. They got what they wanted but didn't want what they got. Saul in in catastrophe and David was the next king under whom Israel reached its zenith. Then David's son Solomon by Bathsheba which shows the mercy of God. Child from an adulterous relationship doesn't say you ought to go do that but it shows the mercy of God Bathsheba was pulled into the lineage of Christ by the mercy of God Solomon builds a temple which becomes the home of the ark of the covenant and the center of the people's worship tragically Solomon's heart the one that gave us the proverbs (laughs) departed from the Lord in his latter years as he descended into idolatry through the influence of his pagan wives, that God told him not to marry. A divided king left a divided kingdom. When Solomon (coughs) dies, the kingdom divides into Israel, the northern kingdom. Ten tribes went there. And Judah, the southern kingdom, two tribes went there. Idolatry flourishes in both places. They constantly fall to idolatry. One thing you do notice, though, when you study the kings and the Chronicles, that Israel never had a righteous king. Not one time did Israel have a righteous king. The ten tribes never had one. Judah at least had a few righteous kings. But you know what is constantly said? Even with the righteous ones, but they didn't remove the high places where incense was offered to idols. Even the righteous ones didn't remove the high places, didn't totally clean up. Israel. It's amazing to me. I mean, they would do all these reforms and all these things right, but they would leave the high places where the people would climb up the hills to burn incense to false deities that they knew God hated, but they didn't remove them. It shows you constantly why we needed a savior. The nation of Assyria destroyed Israel in 722 BC. God just brought them under judgment. There was nothing left but to judge them. And then Babylon destroyed Judah from 597, 586 BC, about a little over a century after Israel was destroyed. Um, Judah was destroyed, taken into captivity, Babylonian captivity. And that's the destruction the prophet Jeremiah predicted would come. And that he writes extensive, extensively about in the book of Lamentations. When they decided to do what was right in their own eyes, after constant calls and beckonings and wooings and warnings from the prophets, they did not listen. And they went to judgment, and we are no different. No politician is going to fix this mess. If if America were to repent, you would be amazed at the difference in one week. Our problem is sin. All right. Ultimately, the temple was destroyed in 586 BC. Huge tragedy. Solomon's temple, beautiful thing, destroyed. The survivors were taken to exile in Babylon for 70 years. Then a remnant returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple, but it was not at all the temple of Solomon. And Israel still longs for the glory it knew under David. And that's a very brief sweep through the Old Testament. Guess what? Everything from Genesis to Malachi is encompassed in the story I just gave you. Turn to your neighbor and say, Shazam! I'm kidding. (laughs) It's kind of amazing. I mean, that's the gist of the Old Testament. That's it. Now, let me give you a quick overview of, of the books. Now, this, we're, we're almost done, but this quick overview. Let's dive into an overview of um, three divisions in the Old Testament. This overview is going to lay the foundation for us to really get into some exciting theology, which is the study of God. There are three main divisions in the Old Testament. Here they are. The story of God's chosen people is the first. Can you say with me the story of God's chosen people? Turn to your table of contents in your Bible and at the front of your Bible, in the table of contents, look at the Old Testament, and block out the first 17 books from Genesis to Esther. If you block out the first 17 books, Genesis to Esther, you have the story of God's people. The story of God's people. From Genesis to Esther, we're given a chronological picture of the history of God's people from creation to all the way to the remnant, coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So, right, first 17 books, that's the story of God's people. That's the history of Israel. Then the next five books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, make up the writings of God's people. Now these writings are not chronological. That is, they're not in order of the time they occurred. For instance, Job did not happen after Esther as it's found in your Bible. You have Esther and then Job. That's not the way it happened. Job's probably the oldest book in the Bible. Job was written before Esther. The first 17 books give us the story of how God is moving among his people. They chronicle how God's plan of salvation was worked out in history based on Genesis 3.15. What we have in Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon is man's response to God in the middle of that history. How did His people respond along the way, like you and me do? The way we respond to God. How do we respond? Well, in praise, in wisdom, in unbelief, in rebellion, in struggling through various challenges and in suffering, all of those things. How many of you can say, I've done all of those things, manifested all those responses to God somewhere along the way, all right? That's, that's, that's what those five books show. So we first have the story of God's people, followed by the response of God's people, and then starting with Isaiah, going all the way to Malachi, you've got the prophets from among God's people. From Isaiah to Malachi, they're split up into major and minor prophets. Isaiah through Daniel are the major prophets. Hosea through Malachi are the minor. Now, that doesn't mean Hosea was less a prophet than Isaiah. It means his book was smaller. That's it. The book was shorter. They're called the minor prophets because their books are smaller and shorter. Now, let's not slight Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Obadiah, they didn't write a lot, but their prophecies were just as accurate as those of the major prophets because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay? The ministry of the prophets historically fits into the time of First and 2 Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now, what were they doing? They appeared and they prophesied during the monarchy the kings, Saul, David, Solomon, divided kingdom, so on and so forth, the division, Israel being destroyed by Assyria, and Babylon coming over and destroying Judah. They prophesied all the way through that time period. In other words, they were primarily raised up of God to address Israel's backsliding, but many of the things they said are relevant to you and me today. You ought to read Jeremiah. You ought to read the book of Jeremiah. Oh, boy. I've read that thing so many times in five years, the last five years, and you would think you're reading a book about America. I'm serious. You ought to just try it. Pick a chapter a day and just read Jeremiah. Now, so in summary, the Old Testament is comprised of the story, the writings, and then the prophets among God's people. So next time, the Pentateuch comes alive. Let's stand up, can we? Can we? Y'all have been so good tonight. You learned so well. Give the Lord a hand. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for giving us the word of God, carrying it down through the centuries, blessing us with it, preserving it for us, starting with, Lord, that Torah and moving through All the rest of the books, you gave us a full revelation of yourself. And we praise you and thank you for teaching us to trust it. We lift our hands to him tonight. And can you just thank him in your own way for giving you a Bible you can trust? A Bible of God's Word.